It's a pleasure and a privilege to be with you here. I first met John, as he said, in 1999, although I'd heard of him prior to 1999, and uh, it was a delight to put a face to a name. We see each other very irregularly, once a year at a minister's conference in Pennsylvania, but whenever I meet John, it's like putting on a pair of old shoes. Um, It's just so easy. It's comfortable. Uh, We talk to each other as if we had just met the day before. Um, Our outlook on Christian ministry is very similar. We've been shaped by the same uh, historic gospel tradition. And probably the reason why I like him so much is because I think he thinks so much like me. (laughs) And can I say to a friend from the pulpit search committee... I'm available. <laughs> but, but, don't tell, but don't tell the church I serve in Scotland or the seminary where I teach. It is a great privilege uh, to be here. On the 31st of October, 1517, when Martin Luther pinned his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, John Calvin was eight years of age. Luther and Calvin probably are the towering figures of the Protestant Reformation. It's often been said that Luther dug the trenches of the Reformation and Calvin, under God, built up the ramparts. And generally speaking, I think there's a lot of truth to that. This morning I want to reflect a little with you on John Calvin's devotional life. Calvin has had a bad press for the past 500 years. He's often considered a theological tyrant, a cold-hearted pastor, a man of narrow predestinarian convictions. When actually the truth is that Calvin was a greatly loved, dearly loved pastor. He had a volcanic temper that often shamed him and humbled him. But when you read contemporary assessments of Calvin's life, you're struck by how he endeared himself to those who longed to see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ take root in the city-state of Geneva in modern-day Switzerland. Now, I don't want to assume that you all know about John Calvin, so let me, as quickly as I can, give you the briefest, the briefest biography of his life to frame what I'm going to say. Calvin was born in 1509 in the little town of Noyon, about 90 miles southeast of Paris. He was destined for the priesthood, but his father had an argument with the local bishop, and his father then redirected his son towards studying law. We don't know when Calvin came to a living faith in Jesus Christ. In all his 
volumes of writing, 59 volumes in all in the Corpus Reformatorum. There are three lines only where he mentions his conversion. In the preface to his Latin commentary on the Psalms, 1556, Calvin says these words, God subdued my heart that was otherwise raised against him. That's all he says. God subdued my heart. Deus subegat. God subdued me. And that actually tells us a huge amount about John Calvin. He was little concerned how people came to faith in Jesus Christ. God brings us by any number of routes to see our need of a Savior. Salvation is profoundly idiosyncratic. What matters is not the route by which you come, but that you actually come to Jesus Christ. And for Calvin, the drama of your conversion or the quietness of your conversion, whether you were regenerate in your mother's womb like John the Baptist, or whether like Calvin you came somewhat dramatically to faith, these were incidental. What really mattered was that your life showed you had been subdued by God, that you were not your own that you were bought with a price. So probably around the year 1530 or so, Calvin comes to a living faith in Jesus Christ. France is in turmoil at the time. The gospel is beginning to penetrate its way into the very life of French society. And the Roman Catholic Church was appalled at this new thing that had come from Germany, initiated by Martin Luther. It was no new thing, of course. It was the recovery of the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Calvin was forced to flee France in the year 1536, and he set out for the reformed stronghold of Strasbourg, where Martin Busser had led the movement for reform. But to get to Strasbourg, because of the various wars that were going on, Calvin had to detour and to travel through Geneva. He had no intention of going to Geneva, but God had other designs for his life. He goes to Geneva. William Farel, who was leading the cause of reform, hears that Jean Covin, the Frenchman who had penned a little work called the Institutes, a little vade mecum, a little book you could put in your pocket at the time, was passing through Geneva. He goes to see Calvin, and he says, you must stay and help us. And Calvin says, I'm sorry, I want a life of quiet contemplation and retirement. And Pharrell said to him, God curse your retirement if you do not stay and help us with the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Calvin wrote, I was so terrified by the imprecation (laughs) that I laid aside going to Strasbourg and he stayed in Geneva. He stays in Geneva for two years 
But the Genevans, while initially welcoming Calvin, realize this man wants the Bible to shape all of our life. This is too much. They dismiss Calvin, 1538. Calvin's relieved. He's delighted. He goes off to Strasbourg. And for three years, he ministers to a French-speaking congregation in Strasbourg. He travels a bit with Martin Luther, uh, with Martin Busser. He, he goes to the colloquy at Regensburg. Uh, he pens a 20-verse canto uh, in Latin. Everything's in Latin. And then he gets a letter. Please, Brother Calvin, come back to Geneva. The cause of the gospel is struggling. Romanism is beginning to loom in the horizon. Please return, Calvin replies, over my dead body. <laughs> I would rather die, he writes, a thousand deaths than go back to that place. Why then did he return a year later? Over my dead body, he says, <laughs> I've had enough of these Genevans. Why does he go back? For one simple reason. Cormeum tibi offero domine prompte et sincere. My heart I give to you, O God, promptly and sincerely. Calvin was a man subdued by God. He was not his own. He recoiled personally from the troubles and the difficulties and the trials that Geneva would clearly bring him, but he was not his own. And so he returns to Geneva. And the first Sunday he returns, you know what he does? He says, let us open our Bibles. And he begins to preach on the te next text in the gospel that he had left off three years before. He never mentions anything about being dismissed. He doesn't say, I knew you would come crawling and plead with me to come back. He just says, let us open the word of God. And he just starts preaching the Bible. 1541, from 1541 to 1555, Calvin has enemies galore. He never has a majority on the council supporting him for those near 15 years. But he battles away. He refuses to be intimidated by the opposition. People would pass his house at night and shoot guns to wake him up. They would set their dogs on him in the street. They would pass him by and they would shout, Ile Galus, that Frenchman. And he was vilified. But he kept preaching the gospel. He had tunnel vision for the glory of God. 1555, a majority in the council start to support Calvin. They see the fruit of his ministry and the other pastors that Calvin had influenced. There was a company of pastors. 1555 to 1564, when he dies, were years of relative tranquility. He dies in 1564. He leaves behind an immense legacy. No one knows where he's buried. He didn't want any epitaph. He didn't want anyone to come to his grave to think that he was anything. Calvin 
would hate the, the word Calvinism. He saw himself as an orthodox Christian. He saw himself as someone who was rooted in the godly gospel tradition of the church of Jesus Christ. He's had an immense influence in my life. Um, in my undergraduate degree, uh, first undergraduate degree, I wrote my dissertation on John Calvin and the struggle for Reformed Orthodoxy. Everyone else in my class was doing uh, transatlantic trade. I studied economic history. Um, uh, the rise of the cotton gin, and I was doing John Calvin. There's a story behind that. But my professor was very indulgent. He knew my heart was set in studying theology. And Calvin has been, for me, um, a lodestar in my life. So, with that introduction... Um, let's look a little at Calvin's devotional life. Because for Calvin, the Christian faith was innately devotional. He didn't divide the Christian faith into the theological and the devotional. Everything was devotional. If it wasn't devotional, it wasn't Christian, and it wasn't Christian theology. Listen to what he writes. True doctrine is not a matter of the tongue, but of life. Neither is Christian doctrine grasped only by the intellect and memory, as truth is grasped in other fields of study. Rather, doctrine is rightly received, now notice these words, when it takes possession of the entire soul, and finds a dwelling place and shelter in the most intimate affections of the heart. Who are those who best understand the doctrine of the gospel? Those whose hearts have been deeply affected by the truth, whose hearts go out to God in Jesus Christ, with wonder, love, and praise. Not those who can best articulate the doctrine, but those who most glorify God because of the doctrine. Four things stand out in Calvin's devotional life. Three provide, the first three points, which will be very brief, provide the foundation on which Calvin's devotional life was built. Number one, if you want to understand Calvin, you need to grasp this, if nothing else. For John Calvin, Jesus Christ himself is the gospel. Jesus has not come to direct us in the way. He has not come to bless us with salvation. He has come to give us himself, who is our salvation. You remember the incident in the temple when Mary and Joseph bring the, the infant Jesus uh, to Simeon, and Simeon has been waiting for the consolation of Israel, and he takes the little bundle of humanity, and he says, I can never remember it in any other version than the King James Version, Lord, lettest thou now thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen your salvation. He looks at this little bundle of wriggling humanity, and he says, there is the salvation of God. And for Calvin, that is absolutely 
preeminent. Jesus Christ is the gospel. There is a magnificent passage in uh, the Institute's Book 2, 1619. Theologically, it is stellar. In terms of literary prose, it's just beautiful and magnificent. Calvin was a wonderful prose writer. Let me just read a little bit. I, I'd love to read you the whole section, but we'll be here for the rest of the morning. But it's a wonderful passage, and it encapsulates Calvin's understanding of the absolute centrifugal centrality of Jesus Christ, who is the gospel. Listen to this. We see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. If we seek salvation, we are taught by the very name of Jesus that it is of Him. If we seek any other gifts of the Spirit, they will be found in His anointing. If we seek strength, it lies in His dominion. If purity, in His conception. If gentleness, it appears in His birth. If purification, in His blood. If mortification of the flesh, in His tomb. If newness of life, in his resurrection. In short, since rich store of every kind of good abounds in him, let us drink our fill from this fountain and from no other. For John Calvin, Jesus Christ was everything. In giving us his son, God has given us everything he could ever wish to give us. There is nothing that we need outside of Jesus Christ. The Christian life is an exploration of what it means to be united to this Jesus Christ in time and eternity. We don't need any other added experience beyond that of union with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the bottomless deep that is the gospel. And so the gospel is never passé, The gospel is always bringing new rich truths out of the depths of the infinite God-man, Jesus Christ. So, for Calvin, Jesus Christ is the gospel. A second foundation is that for Calvin, God as Trinity defined the shape of his piety. God as Trinity defined the shape of his piety. If someone asked me, Ian, what what exactly is Calvinism? My instinctive answer would be Calvinism is loving the Holy Trinity with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's Calvinism. Calvin didn't say anything new about election or predestination that hadn't been said centuries before. He said nothing that Augustine hadn't said, that Thomas Bradwardine hadn't said, that even Thomas Aquinas hadn't said. Absolutely nothing new. But preeminently at the forefront and woven through the whole fabric of the institutes of the Christian religion, in my little opinion, the greatest work ever written, 
is his adoration of the Holy Trinity. In book one, um, I don't remember, book one, 1317, Calvin famously says, there are words of Gregory Nazianzen that, I, that vastly delight me. You know, when I first read that, the vastly delighted Calvin. Calvin wasn't one for overstatement. So what vastly delighted him? And he quotes some words of Gregory Nazianzen, a late 4th century church father, Greek church father. And here are the words, I'll paraphrase rather than just quote from the text. Whenever I think of the one, I must think of the three. But when I think of the three, I must think of the one. And when I do, my mind is overwhelmed, my heart begins to burst, tears begin to flow, and I turn aside and worship. And Calvin said, that vastly delights me. Whenever I read that, I think how different that is from much of modern evangelical Christianity. The early fathers didn't get everything right, but boy, they got some things right. And Calvin understood that God's revelation is the revelation of the triune God. That's why at baptism, the first time, the first time God's name is ever fully explicated in redemptive history is when Jesus says, baptize them in the name, the singular name, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christian life, Christian piety, Calvin uses the word pietas all the time, not pietism, but piety, God-honoring devotion, is rooted in reveling in the Holy Trinity. Do you revel in God? You wonder why these great church councils agonized and battled over the doctrine of God, sometimes embarrassingly so, but because they knew it mattered. They knew it mattered. God wants us to know him as he is, and he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then thirdly, a third foundation stone, if you like, before we try and briefly look at Calvin and prayer. For Calvin if the Holy Trinity defined the shape of his piety, God as Father is the focus of his piety. I would guess most people associate Calvin with the sovereignty of God, and that's fair enough uh, up to a point. But for Calvin, God's sovereignty is always the sovereignty of a heavenly Father. For example, preaching on Ephesians 3, verses 9 through 12, Calvin says, We may approach into the presence of God and come to him for refuge just as a child throws itself into the lap of his father or mother. For it is certain that God surpasses all the fathers and mothers of the world in all kindness and favor. For Calvin, God as Father is to be the focus of our piety, not atomistically because we come to the Father united to the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Lord Jesus Christ in his heavenly glory orchestrates the worship of the church, doesn't he? Hebrews 2. 
Here am I and the children God has given me. I will declare your praise in the midst of the congregation. And in heaven, he is orchestrating the praises of his redeemed church to the glory of the Father. And for Calvin, that's absolutely paramount. And that's why Jesus so strenuously impressed on his disciples the great need for them to understand that God was their Father. In the Old Testament, God as Father is mentioned, I think, about 19 times. Uh, Ten times specifically, he's called Father, mainly in the book of Isaiah. In Matthew chapter 6 alone, Jesus ten times calls God Father, your Father, your Father. And when you pray, they come, pray our Father, 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 Father. He wants them to know that this is the principial relationship that a believer has with God. It's familial. He is our Father in heaven, so there is reverence and awe. God alone is awesome. God alone. Awesome should only ever be predicated of God. God is Father. And that brings a familial texture to devotion and piety, doesn't it? Yes, we are the dust of the earth. But there is glorified dust on the throne of heaven. And God embraces dust. And he embraces us as our Father who loves us, who rejoices over us. Book of Zephaniah, chapter 3, God rejoices over his people with singing. Isn't that amazing? You ever wonder, what is, Lord, what are you singing about over me today? So those are the three, I think, basic foundation stones for Calvin's uh, life of devotion. But fourthly and specifically, for Calvin, the Christian life is a life of personal heart-engaging devotion. 200 years after Calvin, Jonathan Edwards, the great New England, um, well, I'll call him an American theologian, he he died before the Revolutionary Wars. He called himself an Englishman. Uh, he was actually offered a church in Scotland. You know that Jonathan Edwards was offered a church in Scotland. And he said, I believe the Scottish church to be pure and holy. Good for Jonathan Edwards. <laughs> but he stayed and became a missionary to the Red Indians, didn't he? Out in, um, de- um, out in the western part of Pennsylvania. But 200 years after Calvin, Jonathan Edwards would say something very similar. True religion consists in large part in holy affections. Calvin's great concern was to see the Lord Jesus Christ enthroned as Lord and Savior in the hearts and lives of God's people. And for Calvin, perhaps the greatest evidence of the Savior being enthroned in a believer's life is that the practice of prayer is fundamental and not supplemental, central and not peripheral. As Calvin begins his magnificent exposition of prayer in Book 3 of the Institutes, Book 3, Chapter 20, if you have never read anything on prayer, read that. 
It's absolutely wonderful. He begins his exposition on prayer in the Christian life with these words. It is therefore by the benefit of prayer that we reach those riches which are laid up for us with the Heavenly Father. Nothing is promised to be expected from the Lord which we are not also bidden to ask of him in prayers. So true is it that we dig up by prayer the treasures that were pointed out by the Lord's gospel and which faith has gazed upon. We dig up by prayer the treasures of the gospel. In fact, When Calvin begins the chapter expounding prayer, the heading reads, prayer, now notice this, prayer which is the chief exercise of faith and by which we daily receive God's benefits. Prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Now, Calvin knows that some will ask, but Brother Calvin, if God is sovereign, as you say he is, and as the Bible says he is, more more importantly, and if God knows everything and has ordained everything, why is there any need to pray at all? And Calvin gives six reasons why Christians must pray. Let me mention four of them in his own words. Here are four reasons Calvin says why Christians must pray. Number one, that our hearts may be fired with a zealous and burning desire ever to seek, love, and serve Him. Number two, that there may enter our hearts no desire and no wish at all of which we should be ashamed to make Him a witness while we learn to set all our wishes before his eyes and even to pour out our whole hearts to him. You see, Calvin's saying, we pray not for God's benefit, we pray for our benefit. Number three, that we be prepared to receive his benefits with true gratitude of heart and thanksgiving. Benefits that our prayer reminds us come from his hand. And number four, moreover, that having obtained what we were seeking and being convinced that he has answered our prayers, we should be led to meditate upon his kindness more ardently. You see the affectional language? To meditate on his kindness more ardently. But Calvin is concerned in this exposition not simply to provide reasons why we should pray, the chief benefit of faith. A prayerless Christian is an oxymoron, a bit like British intelligence or whatever. It's it's an oxymoron. A prayerless Christian is a practical atheist. So, Calvin gives four rules of right prayer. Number one, you could anticipate this, the first rule of prayer is reverence. Intense earnestness of soul, 
sincerity of heart, and pure simplicity are the finest rhetoric. Let me read that again because I think it's very significant that we should take such truths to heart. Intense earnestness of soul, sincerity of heart, and pure simplicity are the finest rhetoric. What impresses God is not the floweriness of our language, not the elevatedness of our theological uh, words and phrases. What impresses God is earnestness, sincerity of heart, and pure simplicity. Second rule is repentance and a sense of need. Listen to what Calvin says, genuine and earnest prayer proceeds first from a sense of our need. We come to God as needy, helpless children. You see it in the 70th Psalm, make haste, O God, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. We come to the Lord as helpless children. And at the very heart of prayer, there is this simple but profound conviction, Lord, I can't, we can't, but you can. Number three, we come in humility, says Calvin. The third rule of prayer, humility. We come deserving nothing. But we come with empty hands to a gracious Father. Remember Jesus' words, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give his good gifts to those who ask him. We come humbly. We come, Lord, what do I deserve from you but your righteous wrath and judgment? But you are my Father. You are my Father. And I come to receive the good things that you have prepared for me. And the fourth rule of prayer is confident hope. Says Calvin, we are encouraged to pray by a sure hope that our prayer will be answered. If God is our Father and we believe that and it's true, then not only will He hear our prayer, He will answer our prayer, often not in the way we have asked or desired. Would you ever want God to answer all of your prayers? I would die rather than that. I hope I mean that. I'm, I'm not wise. Sometimes I'm the most unwise being on the face of the planet. I must bring all my prayers with the concluding comment, expressed or unexpressed, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. It was the Savior's prayer. It's the holiest of all prayers. You're saying, Lord, you alone have the wisdom and the grace and the goodness to know what's best for me. Be pleased, notwithstanding all my entreaties and longings and passions, be pleased, O oh God, my Father, to answer my prayer according to your wise and holy will. 
True piety for Calvin is manifested in a life of prayer. But I need to pause to make an important point. For Calvin, and more importantly, of course, for the Bible as a whole, piety, devotion, is personal but not private. In other words, true piety, a true life of devotion, is rooted in the life of the church. Have you ever noticed how all the metaphors and images of the church are corporate? The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are living stones built together into the church. is the body of Christ. We're all joined together. The church is the bride of Christ, and, and, and so on. Atomized Christianity is another oxymoron. Remember Paul's words in Ephesians 3.18, it is together with all the saints that we learn how high and wide and deep and broad is the love of Christ. How do we learn about the love of Christ? Not principally in our quiet times, though those are vital for our growth. The great ordained occasions when we grow up into Christ are those occasions when the church gathers in the name of Jesus Christ on the ordained day of God to hear His Word, when we grow up together. We need one another. Our piety requires one another. We are members united to one another. I wonder what you'll make of these words. I wonder if you would ever know they came from the pen of John Calvin. There is no other way to enter into life unless this mother, the church, conceive us in her womb, give us birth, nourish us at her breasts, and lastly, unless she keeps us under her care and guidance until putting off mortal flesh, we become like the angels. We live 300 years after the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment brought individualism into the very heart and fabric of Western civilization, and probably most in France and in the United States through men like Voltaire and Montesquieu and Thomas Paine. You battle in this country, if, if I can speak as an outsider, you battle with um, this insidious individualism, which in some respects has served you wonderfully well. You're, we love coming to America. We, we, we love the dynamism. Um, we, we love the, the entrepreneurial and far-sightedness of our Christian brothers and sisters. But there is an individualism. You know, I've got my Bible. I've got my Savior. Well, yeah, the church is there as a kind of um, oasis I can, I, I can go to when the mood suits or when the feeling grabs. No. God has united us together in Christ. We need one another. Imagine my little finger. You know, I bashed my little finger a while ago. And... Uh, Imagine my finger thought, you know, I'm fed up with this aging, decrepit body of Ian Hamilton's. I, I've, I'm off. I'm off. So it, it amputates itself and decides to do its own thing. Well, for a, for a few moments you would think, oh, isn't that interesting? Look at that little finger. It's, it's doing its own thing. 
And then very quickly it begins to putrefy. And, and it falls to the ground. And you think, what an ugly, pathetic little thing that is. And you see, it wasn't ever meant. It, 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 it was meant to bear with this aging, decrepit body. And we are to bear with one another, to love one another, to grow up with one another. We fail one another, we disappoint one another, but we are bound together in the family of God, united in Jesus Christ one to the other. It's the highest conceit to think that you can grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ without sinking your life into the very life of a local church. I, I think it's the highest conceit. And so Calvin strenuously labored to persuade the people of Geneva, and through his commentaries, and he wrote commentaries on most books of the Bible. I've actually done one thing that Calvin never did. I preached through the Song of Songs. I felt quite good. I thought, whoa, I've done what Calvin never did. But he, he wrote commentaries. And all the time, he's saying, the church, you say, ah, it's the invisible church. The only church with which we have to do is the visible church. We, we don't know what the invisible church is. The only church with which we have to do is covenant churchman role, Smithton Free Church of Scotland, Inverness, Cambridge Presbyterian Church. God has given the church pastors and teachers. Why? That we might grow up into Christ. He's given us one another. We're to pastor one another. And together we are to um, grow up into Jesus Christ, the head. So, for John Calvin, the whole of the Christian life is rooted in Jesus Christ, who is the great salvation of God. We don't preach, you know, I'll put it as dramatically as I can. We are never to preach justification by faith alone. Never, 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 never. We are to preach Jesus Christ in whom God justifies the ungodly through faith alone. We're not saved by faith. We're not even saved by grace. We're saved by God in Jesus Christ acting graciously towards us. Jesus Christ is the gospel. God is a holy trinity. And we are to have communion and fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And God is our Father. The intimacy of that is something that Calvin never tired of expounding or delighting in. And prayer, personal prayer, family prayer, congregational prayer, is what manifests the presence of true faith in our lives. So, a little bit about John Calvin. Um, we're all allowed heroes. Uh, he's my great hero, along with William Chalmers Burns. Probably never heard of him. Uh, can tell you about him sometime. John Calvin, born 1509, dies 1564. And his life's motto, my heart I give to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely.
Well, yeah, if, if there is time for questions, um, as long as they're not hard. <laughs> Stunned to silence. Ah. <laughs> Your pastor has a question. Calvin understands prayer as the Bible understands prayer, as exposing all that we are to God. In prayer, we allow the, the Lord's all-seeing gaze to search our hearts and our minds. And what, what Calvin is saying is that when we come to to God in prayer, knowing that He is the all-seeing one, the all-knowing one. That reality should burn up all unholy desires, all selfish interests, all merely personal concerns, so that when we come before the Lord in prayer, we allow who God is to purify our prayers, so that we actually pray the prayers that God Himself would have us pray. It's as if you, you bring the dross to the fire, and the fire burns up the dross. And I don't know about you, but I, I, I find that regularly in prayer, because what, what exactly are, are we to pray? Essentially, we are to pray what God has promised. We are to pray in the light of who God is. We are to ask for nothing that will not bring Him glory. We are to desire nothing that will not exalt Christ and make Him great, and that we will find our true selves in His greatness. I mean, those of you who are married, I think you know something of that. What, what, what makes you most happy in life? For, for a man, when your wife is being honored and blessed, there's nothing to compare with that. And I think it's the same for the Christian. What, what most blesses the Christian is when the Savior is being magnified. And I think Calvin is saying, uh, when we come to prayer, we allow who God is, we allow His omniscience, His all-seeing, all-knowing gaze to search our hearts and to burn up all the, the specious prayers. You know, sometimes we can put a veneer of piety over things that are really saying, Lord, I really would love this, you know. <laughs> I, I don't mean I really love, love a Ferrari or, you know, but the same kind of principle, you know, this is going to aggrandize me, this, this is going to make me something. This is going to make my life better, uh, uh, more straightforward, more comfortable. But when you come into God's presence, 
in the light of his word, you say, Lord, do what will glorify your son. And if that means I will be the more comfortable through it, praise be to your name. If that means I have to die through it, praise be to your name. So I think that's something what he's saying. I don't know how to answer questions briefly. <laughs> Jones heard me say this, and I'll close with this. A few years ago, our children came to me, and they said, Dad, we've decided what to write on your epitaph when you die. Any of your children done that? <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, knowing my children, <laughs> they would say, you know, loving father, beloved husband of Joan, you know, kind. I said, well, what, what are you going to write? And David, the elder, said, and he was not brief. <laughs> <laughs> they had listened to many sermons. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. Okay, we're getting ready to be dismissed and then regather for worship. There are still refreshments here for you all to enjoy. Um, you might get a, a chance to greet Ian briefly before I haul him off and sequester him in my study for some quiet time before worship. Jonathan, there are these are the books. We, we, ordered, um, we ordered 25 of Ian's books, and they um, are available on a first-come, first-served basis. But we can get you more. All we need to do is put a sign-up sheet if you'd like to get some more of those. Um, easily, easily done. Um, I didn't mention, and, and Ian doesn't want me to do this. He's probably, I can see his ears turning red right now. Um, he's, he's done two uh, video, and I think they're available on audio as well, uh, series for Ligonier Ministries. Uh, one is entitled Calvinism and the Christian Life. The other is entitled The Reformed Pastor, based on a work by uh, the Puritan Richard Baxter, but very, very, very uh, applicable to our uh, contemporary setting. And not only for pastors, by the way. I mean, if you're interested in delving a little uh, deeper into these themes. Either one of these would be very helpful DVDs or um, audios available from Ligonier. Uh, I can, we, Jonathan, I can help you with that if you need, need some direction on um, getting in touch with that resource. So uh, we will gather for worship in just a bit. And uh, please be sure to get there a little sooner than you ordinarily do. Um, we will be setting up the overflow here, uh, so you all are, are getting the tip. You know, get into the sanctuary and be seated. And, and church members, you know who you are. You know who you are. You, we need you seated in the choir loft, right? We need the choir loft full to, uh, for to make for available seating in the pew. So please just go ahead and take that initiative and be seated um, uh, as you oftentimes do. Okay, I think that's it. And we'll then we have worship at six o'clock as well.
So um, if there are those from other congregations who are going back to your own local congregation for worship now, please know that if you're available at 6 o'clock, you may regather with us. You're welcome to stay with us, but we don't want to intrude on your own local congregational schedule. But we will be gathering for worship at 6 p.m. in the sanctuary. So let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we are thankful that uh, you are building your church throughout history, throughout the world, and that in your providence we are able to learn from those godly men and women who have gone before us uh, faithfully following your word. So we thank you for the life, ministry, and legacy of John Calvin. We pray especially, O Lord, that we uh, would follow him only as he followed you. And now we seek your blessing. We pray that by the presence of your spirit within us and among us, uh, we would indeed enter into your presence with thanksgiving that we would come into your courts with praise, that by faith we would behold you high and lifted up. And behold, Lord, by faith, uh, the majesty of your splendor, the glory of your grace, um, the wonders of your kindness, mercy, and love toward us, in Jesus Christ. And so may we worship you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength to the glory of your name. Amen.